Dotnet Rocks, episode 1074, with guest Phil Trulford. Recorded Wednesday, December 3rd, 2014. Hey, it's Carl Franklin. And Richard Campbell. And we're here in the Fishbowl at NDC. Again, we'll be doing quite a few shows from here. Absolutely. And uh, always fun to be at NDC. You're going to recognize the sound of a, a show at a conference. NDC London, the new developer conference. Not the Norwegian developer. Not the Norwegian developer, because it's not in Norway. Yes. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we're here uh, in the Fishbowl as we are every year. Man, we're having a good time. And, uh, well... Uh, Phil Trelford is here. We'll be talking to him in just a minute. And I guess, without any further small talk, let's roll the stupid music for Better Know Framework. He loves it. All right, buddy, what do you got? I don't know why. Everybody loves it. It's the musical instruments that are involved. It's, yeah, certainly not music to code by. <laughs> <laughs> it's music to go WTF by, I yeah. think. What was that? What was that? Okay, well, uh, back in October, one Addy Avnet suggested we revisit the Secure String. Oh? Secure String is a class in the .NET framework, okay. and it's at system.security.securestring. Right out of the docs, it represents text that should be kept confidential. The text is encrypted for privacy when being used and deleted from computer memory when no longer needed. Wow. This class cannot be inherited, so it is... Uh, sealed so i mean unlike normal strings where when you when you null a string it actually just removes a reference to it right but it's, it's still, still in memory still hanging out in memory until garbage collection right but with the secure string it actually removes it from memory yes and so you know i've talked about this i think i've talked about you twice before yeah but it is so cool and it's one of those things you don't expect uh unless you're the kind of guy who walks through the namespace reference uh documentation and happens to find it, but it's certainly not in the string documentation, right. which is where you'd expect it. It's in it. a different. Yeah, it's inside the security library, mm-hmm. yeah. so you have to have that around, and then there you go. And we have interviewed people who uh, have, you know, told us about how insecure .NET is, and if somebody just puts up a memory profile or just you know looks at memory while things are running, right. uh, they can you, you can, can see, see all sorts of stuff. So, sure. So there you go. But there's a solution to that. And secure strings part of it. Secure. Secure string is part of it. So that's it, Richard. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1068, the one we did with Rocky Laka, talking about universal apps. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, that was a fun show, because first we, we dug into the whole JavaScript thing again. That was fun. Yeah. And Rocky's hilarious. But, you know, he's hit on a roller coaster ride like a lot of us have I, in the past couple of years. I love the fact that he's just so easy going about, you know, changing his mind, which yeah. I, I wish more people were. Less dogmatic. Yeah, he does not believe in the one right way. No. It's, it's what works in, right now. Yeah, what works right now. Yeah. Exactly. We don't worry about all the time. So this comment's from Piers Lawson, who says, uh, regarding the off-topic discussion of whether or not a firm can get away with having the same look and feel on all devices, or whether they should have a custom UI for each of the iOS, Windows Phone, Windows, and Android apps. Mm-hmm. You know, like Facebook, all sure. one UI. and. A lot of other apps are trying to do specific to each device. Yeah. Perhaps a more important factor to consider than the size of the brand is whether an individual user is likely to use the app on more than one device. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, you sure. think about Kindle, where you, you might easily float between devices, and you want some commonality there. 
As a developer of an app, we are unusual users as that we see the app in all of its forms. Mm -hmm. If most users only see a single device, they will be more concerned about the app sitting well with their other apps. Mm -hmm. An iOS-only user will not be interested in whether or not you have a common user experience on an Android phone. Sure. However, if your users jump between devices or the desktop browser, then they probably appreciate more commonality between these experiences. Right. Big brands are likely to have users that use their app on multiple devices. That's true of Facebook, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. And or the desktop browser experience. So a common experience makes sense. But a small company may serve users who naturally use multiple devices, perhaps users who work in an office and in the field, and therefore a common experience might make sense there too. Yeah, I wouldn't rule out the common experience for the purposes of branding either. Right. Well, yeah. I think that's part of it, but I, I, I really appreciate this thinking. I think it's a different way of thinking about the problem is how likely right. are people using it across devices and big band apps have a greater likelihood. Sure. But it depends on the app. Sure, so it depends on the app. It's yeah. certainly a consideration. Uh, Piers, great thinking, sir. Thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. If you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or with any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS and Android. And uh, I do apologize for the background noise. Lots of people milling about out here. Uh, it should die down soon. And with that, let me introduce Phil Trelford. Phil is an active member of the software development community, regularly attending and speaking at user groups and conferences, and blogging and contributing to open source projects. He is a co-organizer of the London F-Sharp user group and a founding member of the F-Sharp Foundation. Welcome, Phil. Hi. You F-Sharp people, you're always up to weird things. And usually very fun. Yeah, we're always having fun, it's got to be said, yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, he's sort of kind of free uh, free in the computing space. You've, been, you've got a weird session here. What is this about building compilers? Yeah, um, I'm having a, a session on how to write your own compiler in 24 hours. Um, hmm. And the idea there is to um, demystify the act of writing a compiler. Right. Um, so just sort of look behind the curtain. Um, one of the reasons is I think actually compiler technology is something that's interesting and um, parts of it are useful, whether it just be the parser or the um, emitting code section. Right. So you don't need to necessarily use all of it. If you were writing your own mocking framework, you could just use code emission. Um, if you were doing an interpreter, you could just do the parsing side. So, Because I think the automatic reaction is, why would I ever do this? I already have a C-sharp compiler. Right. But you're talking about not just building apps from scratch, does, that compilations for. Does, yeah. does building a compiler help you understand your own compiler and how Absolutely. To, what it's telling you? Yeah, um, building a compiler can be a really fantastic way of really getting down and dirty and understanding how things work. Um, I recently did a parser for C Sharp. Right. And I think I probably hmm. learned more in the, uh, the three or four hours that it took me to write the parser than it did... Uh, for the whole year before of what I learned in C Sharp because, <laughs> because I'm really getting down and understanding exactly all of the modifiers and how they can be composed together so I can actually make that parser work. Now, what language did you write the parser in? I, I wrote the parser using a parser combinator library uh, in F Sharp. Okay. So um, F Sharp is actually a fantastic language uh, for writing uh, parsers and compilers, right. uh, along with OCaml, which it's based on. And um, part of the reason for that is you have these uh, union types that allow you to describe the abstract syntax tree almost trivially. Right. And um, on top of that, once you've got, you've passed into that 
um, abstract syntax tree, you can then um, match over it, do pattern matching, and you can transform that into um, IL code or JavaScript. And if you were writing that in an object-oriented language like C-sharp, you'd be in recursion hell pretty much, or what would... Well, um, I, I think what the um, Roslyn has a lot of visitors, um, which is in effect what um, pattern matching does for you. Mm -hmm. But if you look at um, like companies like Facebook, um, they've been doing uh, parser um, for their hack language uh, and recently for a um, JavaScript extensions, and they've been using OCaml. So um, that pattern matching capability is just huge. It is huge, to, yeah. To achieve that, and I believe... And, uh, and there's not a lot of distance between OCaml and F-sharp. Uh, not in the core language, no. Right. Um, if we rewind back to around 2006, there was a uh, backward compatibility mode where you could just kind of drop your OCaml code in and it would work straight off uh, on .NET, which is pretty cool. There were a few things that were missing right. from OCaml, but the majority of OCaml code would just run. So we, we've talked and that's to, still kind of there. Yeah. We've talked several times on the show about pattern matching, but I really I get the feeling that you could really explain it better than any of our previous guests have. Can we talk about that for just because I think it's such a key to... Uh, you know, to functional programming and, you know, languages like OCaml and, and, and F-sharp now. And t t just tell us what the power of pattern matching is. Yeah, I mean, if you're coming from uh, an imperative uh, language uh, like C-sharp, uh, where you've got switch case, uh, you've got the ability to switch over integers and strings. Mm. Um, you can think of pattern matching as kind of um, switch case on steroids. So you've got this mm. um, ability to to switch case over any kind of type. So you can yeah. switch case over a tuple, and instead of saying just uh, catch case one, you can say, uh, I'm gonna match over this tuple, and I'll match one or anything else, or one or two, yeah. and then you can actually construct matches which are tables, yeah. right? Or you could match over objects. And so you're looking for patterns in the data, essentially, yeah. to match as the data comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, if you were doing um, some sort of messaging you, in, in um, C sharp, you might do if this is yes. that, yeah. then cast it to that, yeah. and then do the work, and uh, and then else, and so on. And yeah. in in power matching, you would just say one of these, yep. okay, do this, <laughs> yeah. right? One of those, do that. Yeah. Now, the nice thing with uh, functional pattern matching. Um, in languages like a Camel, F Sharp, Haskell, and is Erlang that too, you, right? um, yeah, and uh, well, Erlang's um, odd on this one. All right. Um, so when we do a switch case, we have no idea whether it's exhaustive or not. So if we miss, or, or if we're doing if then else, um, if we miss, if we add a new case and we miss it, yeah, right, we just get a runtime error. Right. Now with power matching and these strongly typed languages, um, you get a compile time error saying you haven't matched that case. Wow, right. So it's just awesome. Wow. Um, Erlang's slightly different. Erlang's not typed. And so um, your matching's limited to lists and tuples and scalar values. Mm. Um, but that's actually by design. And the idea is that you can hot patch Erlang at runtime. Mm. So it may be that there is a pattern, a new pattern, mm. um, that you haven't seen before. And that, that's kind of valid. For, That's the, for really the scenarios cool. that Erlang's trying to deal with. Hot um, patch at runtime. So basically, you just, as the program's running, you say, here's a new case. Yeah. 
Here's yeah, a new pattern and, well, and, and here's a new module. And what it will yeah. do is it will wait for all of the existing users of that module um, to complete and then patch in the new module. That's very cool. Um, wow. So that's, yeah, hot patching. Now that's how you, you can have something with nine nines of uptime, yeah. right? Um, right? Whereas in our, ma in our managed uh, static compiled world, we'd have to pull the service down yeah. and have some, some downtime before we can bring it back up again. Yeah, we've just learned to stop and restart quickly. Yeah. Not actually fix on the fly. But yeah. if you're uh, if you're trying to do something like SMS and you want you know you don't want any outages, that's expensive. Then this sure. is the kind of infrastructure you need. Sure. Now oh. you can achieve that by using kind of uh, dynamic typing within your statically typed languages, but it it's not a core feature, and you have to do all of the work that Erlang has built in. Well, you know, and also in the ASP.NET stack, you can swap out assemblies. Uh, just write over an existing assembly with a new one, and the, it will pass off the old connections and wait till they're done and do exactly what you say. The hot patching is available there. So if you're using that as the basis for your service, you're okay. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. If you're doing close to the metal services, lots and lots of threads in a single service, yeah, yeah, you've got a, you've got a problem there. If I could dig a little deeper, and I think I have got Please. an explanation that I've used a few times. Yeah. And this really is the, the union types and pattern matching are the crux of um, functional um, against the OO. Now, um, just a quick um, disclaimer that um, F-sharp and OCaml do support OO. And, right. Um, there are different cases where you might use um, object hierarchies or pattern matching. And there's no right or wrong answer. It's just which is uh, most frequent. Hmm. Now, when we have an object hierarchy, um, we can um, add new types relatively easily, mm -hmm. right? But if we add a new function, we have to go and visit all of the um, places and re-add that function. Yeah. Uh, and then in effect, so we're going across lots of files. And actually, that functionality is now split across all of the files sure. but adding new types is easy so that, that's a win in that situation you feel yeah. that you're going to add new types a lot the other case is where you think you're going to add a lot of functions right um, mm. and your, your types aren't going to change that often and so with um, that scenario you you have your union type described and each time you add a new function over it you just uh, write that pattern match to deal with the existing types. Right. Now, and, if, a, and a union you, type is a, a combination or a collection of functions. What is a union type? A, a, a union type is, um, in effect, um, an ab in, in C sharp terms, it's an abstract base class. Okay. Uh, with a set of concrete classes underneath it. All so right. it's a, it's a flat object hierarchy. Okay. And um, what we have is each um, each case. In effect, represents a concrete class, and it might have its own members. Mm. So, in the case of um, shapes, we might have the shape abstract class, mm -hmm. and then we'll have a, a concrete class for square, rectangle, yeah, right. triangle, circle, and so okay. forth. And so, yeah, if you were doing a shape library, you might just, you might think that you're you're going to add uh, either more shapes, or you're going to add more functions, and right. and it's going to ease it. Now, um, both of those. Both languages actually, uh, both, both language approaches help you in either case. So if you're doing um, OO, um, most of the compilers will tell you you've missed that function. Right. right? Mm. And with um, going back all the way around to where we began, um, with 
uh, functional programming languages, they'll say, you've missed that pattern match part. Mm -hmm. So you'll get a compiler and you go and fill it in. Right. But I guess the, the, um, the thing that you've got with a pattern matching approach, if I decide to have a printer um, function, I want to print off my diagram, um, I literally have that all in one place. Yeah. Right. You write it once. Sitting in, in the one base place, class. and I match all of the types. Now, if I was mm. doing it in OO, I might, you know, if I did it really yeah, naively, I'd end up putting it, writing it everywhere, visiting each class, and then I've I've kind of added these dependencies to printers right. all the way across, which I don't want to do. Yeah, uh, so, a lot of complexity. But that that's the that's um, fundamental type. Now, what I find is I tend to add functions more than I add um, types. new types mm -hmm. right. generally because you fall out your usually you fall out your types before. But it's not always the case. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, that's where the choice. And I think it's wonderful when you have this, this fusion of OO and FP, and you can make that choice. Right. And, well, and, and you can change your choice. <laughs> you know? I do like the enforcement element of that. So when you realize there's something I want to add to the base class, and it, say in the form of a type, it's basically leading you down the, okay, you need to implement it here, you need to implement it here. Like, it's letting you know all the yeah. ways you need to work yeah. on it. Like, to me, that seems like a very maintainable pattern. Exactly. You yeah. know where you've got to go do your work when you make the when you make a change there. Yeah, uh, and that's that's one of the huge wins in functional programming. Sure. Um, there's lots of other sugary things. Sure. But that base set is the the thing that um, the, the bread of uh, functional right, programmers. Right. So, oh. and and when it comes to writing a compiler, this these kind of things help you a lot because. Absolutely. Um, so. What we do is we're building an abstract syntax tree. Right. Um, so that, that, that's a big word, sure. uh, a big set of words. Uh, in effect, we're saying uh, we could have a function yeah. with a name and some arguments, right. um, an invocation of that function. We might have an add, and that adds two literals. And now we're starting to get a tree because right. we could have an add and then a multiply. And this right. is where it becomes tree-like. Sure. And then when we want to... Um, either interpret that or we want to compile that out, we just do the pattern match and we say, oh, it's a plus, it's sure. an add, <laughs> oh, okay. And we've got a literal on one side, so we, we recursively go back and say, omit the literal, omit the add, omit the other literal. Actually, right. in the case of IL, you would omit both uh, literals and then the add because it's stack-based. Um, but in, if you were doing it in terms of JavaScript, you would do it in the previous so a parser order. is just a big pattern matching block is it not? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, sorry. No, that's uh, the parser itself is um, uh, the parser. There's a lot of different ways of doing that, but the uh, interpreter or the the yeah. compile part. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things I think the Roslyn and v C sharp and VB teams learned while they were writing the compiler would it have been a lot more convenient to have pattern matching, and I mm. think they'd like the idea of adding pattern matching in to simplify. Right. Um, Simplify the the code base, and, right? I mean, uh, what about pattern matching is specific to functional programming? Well, I, I think you can you can see a fusion of languages um, happening all over the place. Mm. So, um, Scala is uh, like F sharp is a hybrid, mm -hmm. and um, that that has curly brace syntax, mm -hmm. um, but it it has case classes which are uh, in effect the discriminative unions or some types we've been yeah. talking about, and they've they successfully added that. Into, into that kind of view, and that's really popular. Uh -huh. There's actually a language on .NET called NML, which has pattern matching. That, that's from about 2010. How do you spell that? Uh, N-E-M-E-R-L-E, -E, NML. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think we used to call it Nemerly. 
Oh, sorry. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. I don't know if that's right either. I probably mispronounced it. I'm sorry if I did. Cool. Uh, But okay. Yeah. So, so there isn't any reason then that why C sharp couldn't have pattern matching. I think, um, no, there's no uh, intrinsic reason why you can't do anything in in language. I think what you will, um, that there are some um, things that will be harder because it hasn't been designed in from the beginning. Because you're not calling a function, you're calling a method. Yeah, yeah. And and in effect, um, there's uh, more subtle differences. So we're talking about um, this oversimplification of functional and yeah. object-oriented. Sure. But really, uh, the, the, the real delimiter is imperative and expression-orientated. Okay. So um, what, we, what we're seeing with C-sharp, Java, C, is this imperative idea where you do one statement and the mm. next statement yeah. um, and have side effects with uh, the functional languages typically in, uh, have expressions. So the, the idea is uh, if we uh, do something like an if, um, we'll return from the if, like a, um, a, t- a ternary operator in um, C-sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't just affect a side effect. And um, it turns out that expression-orientated programming does it is more suited to pattern matching. Right. But it's not unachievable to do it. Um, and in actual fact, in my talk, I will uh, be showing how I've added uh, pattern matching to uh, a... Uh, derivative basic language, um, so ah. first class tuples and pattern matching. Wow. Well, yeah, now you're getting the sort of meta effect of I'm using pattern matching to recognize in my syntax some pattern matching. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, really cool. <laughs> oh, so I didn't write the um, the compiler for the basic language no? in basic. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I could have done. I yeah, guess. Could have. I, 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 don't, I don't know if it makes it a good uh, a good idea, but yeah. You, know, you, you get into these interesting loops. I mean, in some ways, it's like, now that we have Roslyn out there, there's so much capability just available to us as an open source library. It makes it much easier to take on building a compiler. Um, I'm, I'm not sure um, you actually need Roslyn right. um, to build a compiler. Um, you can use it. Um, Is it kind of overkill? Uh, I, I'm not. I, I think um, there's so many different options out there, and it, it might be for some circumstances. Um, I have. Uh, I was running a course at Build Stuff mm-hmm. uh, last week on how to write a compiler in a day. Right. And when we wrote a compiler um, for a logo-like language, okay. um, compiled Wait. to JavaScript in six hours, writing mm-hmm. uh, in F sharp. Yeah. Um, so the parser, the abstract syntax tree parser, and compiled to JavaScript portions all within that time frame. Now, I'm not sure whether you get that kind of speed uh, with, the, with the Roslyn compiler. Mm-hmm. But, but you can do some interesting metaprogramming with Roslyn for sure. Yeah, well, writing code that writes itself, right? Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned uh, uh, parse comedy, uh, a parser combinator library for F-sharp. Was that F-parsec? That's right, yeah. Okay. So that's um, based on a Haskell project called uh, Parsec. And uh, Scholar's actually got a uh, parse combinator library uh, built in now um that, it is just one way to go right i've i've written um handwritten parsers use lexin yak um all sorts of different options over the, over time but i have found fparsec incredibly quick to put something together with one of the lovely things about it is um it's very terse um and when i write a simple parser 
it gives me beautiful error messages. <laughs> so um, somebody using the compiler will, if they put something wrong, it will actually say, I was expecting right. um, you to give me a number mm. at this point or an equal sign. And mm. you'll get an error message with a little arrow in the text line where it went wrong with the line number nice. pointing at the bit that wow. went wrong. Yeah. Now, that's actually one of the hard things to do <laughs> with a parser. Yeah. Uh, you know, just it's making it work good for error good message. code. Yeah, it's making yeah. for free. And yeah, yeah. Um, you can also add your own custom error messages, but pretty much you write a parser out of the box, you get excellent error messages. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah, you think about a tool to build a compiler. This is an important part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, when we're talking about compilers with, with, with parsers, you you may actually just go out to an interpreter right. afterwards. Um, right. That might be a valid uh, use case. Yeah, I think we're. I'm, I'm. I'm afraid of mishmashing terms around here. So there's a bunch of different pieces in what we're talking right. about. Yeah, building. it might be good to define them. Yeah, because there's sort of an initial state machine is just walking through the execution of the code and then running that that pattern matching against each line of code and building up a st the state of the machine as you're executing each line of code. Yeah, um, I mean, this, yeah, let, let's go through it. The standard kind of computer science way right. would be we define this abstract syntax tree, this yep. kind of uh, have some general understanding of what it should look like. Mm -hmm. um, we just define that in code. And we might do a token pass initially, right? Right. Where we, we go and say, oh, well, that's a literal, well, first of, first that's a number. Tree is uh, is what can be said in what order. In other words, it, what does the tree represent? Your your language. So if I was doing the syntax tree for link or whatever, you know, the from, this, in, that, where, uh, you know, all of those things, the next, whatever I can do next, it yeah. has to be part of a hierarchy. Yeah. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Exactly. With um, actually, tree? for if we look at something like C sharp, um, the main part of the abstract syntax tree will, will have our expressions. Yeah. And there'll be things like addition, multiplication, right. comparison, um, function calls that return, mm. property gets. That's and a lot of stuff. Uh, there's about 20 things. If you, um, have a look on my blog, you'll see the AST for C sharp. Okay. Um, and, um, if you um, then extrapolate from there, we then have the imperative statements, the kind okay. of core of the language. Yeah. And um, there we can do for loops, while loops. We can assign values um, to variables. We can set properties. Mm. We can call actions. And those are our instructions. Yeah. And so the expression tree will actually end up being quite a tree. Yeah, quite uh, the a instructions tree. will, um, in effect, you, you'll have like a for loop, which will then have Maybe the expression right. that defines the the first part, mm -hmm. and then the another expression for um, the loop ending and so mm -hmm. forth, and then it will have a block underneath it, which will be a list of instructions mm -hmm. um, that get executed within that. Okay, that yeah, block. I just wanted to make sure we define what we're talking about. Yeah, Got no, it. no, that's a really good point. Um, so um, to go over. One of our, our text in our file, our language, um, we would we would tokenize and um, curly braces in the case of C sharp would okay. be one of our tokens right. and mm -hmm. um, sort of defining blocks of code that yeah. need to be parsed together. So we're just trying to do a nice easy first part, right? So that when when we go in and try and match those patterns up, we we don't have to deal with each character, right? And then and this is the traditional approach, and then we'll go from the t we'll take those tokens and pass out to a the abstract syntax tree. Um, and then now we've got the abstract syntax tree, we can go anywhere. 
Right. Um, so mm. with the abstract syntax tree, we can go out to .NET IL, we could go out to Java, mm -hmm. we could go to JavaScript, LLVM, wherever we want to go. Mm. Um, and it, this is one of the um, things that Roslyn's brought to the party for C Sharp that's yeah. been there for most languages already, is the ability to take the abstract syntax tree from C Sharp and match that out and maybe push it out to uh, JavaScript or to some other uh, metaprogramming approach. Awesome. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. <laughs> That's right. Time to roll down the window and yell, hey, buddy, match this pattern. <laughs> your jersey came out there. I got your pattern matching right here. Nice. Yeah, actually, it's... <laughs> I don't know. That's the best I could come up with. I'm just so... I, You know, usually what happens is about 10 minutes before I start thinking of a joke and Richard sort of takes over talking, but... I was just so interested in what Sorry. we were talking about. That's <laughs> the best, best I could come up with. A fast Jersey joke. A fast Jersey joke. Anyway, it's time to give away a Sync Fusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. But before I tell you today's winner, is your big data strategy causing you headaches? We'll ditch the complicated configuration and jargon and pump up your development with the only easy-to-use big data solution for Windows. The Sync Fusion Big Data Platform installs quickly and is packed with samples to help you get up and running in 15 minutes or less. Check it out now at SyncFusion.com and start working with big data in under 15 minutes. And even if you aren't working with big data, you can take advantage of over 500 SyncFusion controls to help you build stunning applications, or you can broaden your skill set with a free ebooks SyncFusion offers on over 40 topics. Download the free trials and free ebooks at SyncFusion.com. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Aaron Dutton. Congratulations, Aaron. Aaron Dutton. And uh, don't drive off the road, Aaron. You really did win. This is not, uh, there's no strings attached. You but it's not up. the big win. The it's big not... win's coming up, though. Yeah, sorry. He's probably disappointed yeah. that he didn't win the big so one. Close. Nope, this is a Syncfusion Essential Studio that you just won. A big pile of awesome from Syncfusion. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. Because we have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away sponsor stuff. And every December, we give away the big one. $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. But you got to sign up to win. And uh, we like to ask our guest, Phil, you know what's coming. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? And wow, that's go. a tricky question. <laughs> um, I think I would get the biggest Alienware box I could. Yeah. Oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> awesome. Just and a big gaming machine? Absolutely, and my kids would then love me. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably yeah. never get to use it. Boys, I presume? I have two boys, there a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. Yeah. yeah, so just strapping as many video cards as you can into a large chassis that looks like it's melting. <laughs> it's got to look pretty as well. So, yeah. is he, would you play games on it, or would you use it as your dev machine, or both, or what? I doubt I would get much chance uh, yeah. to get them off. That, that's <laughs> yeah. what happens to the consoles, but right. but at least they'd be happy. Yeah, yeah, and, sure. Uh, yeah, what I don't even know what the current ref. Remember when Crisis was like the reference game? It was the hardest, most complex video rendering game out there, and it's like if you don't have a smoking video card, you can't play this thing. But then you would take like. 
the best video card you could find and crank up all the features in Crisis, and it would just melt the card. <laughs> so I don't know. That's a few years ago now. There's been a Crisis 2 and stuff. I just wonder, what is the app today What's that takes today? those insanely expensive video cards? Well, I'm and sure makes some alert barf. listener will know the answer to that. Yeah. Share it with us. It's, it's a thing. It's just like, yeah. what's really pushing the pixels these days? What do the boys play? Uh, the eight-year-old's very keen on Minecraft. Oh, well, that's and not he, exactly a heavy video rendering. He, yeah. ma- he makes his own videos. Yeah, and, uh, no, that's awesome. That's great. And uh, the 12-year-old likes uh, Roblox quite a lot, and he makes his own levels and uh, mm. scripts. Oh, cool. Um, scripts, AI, So they both got a little programming bias and creator bias yeah. there. Uh, yeah, I haven't really pushed them, but um, obviously they've been surrounded by me yeah, yeah, these right. years. Um, last week was really good fun. Um, my eight-year-old did his first uh, user group talk. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so he did a talk uh, at Cambridge, uh, the Cambridge um, Developer, Developer, Developer nice. at Nights um, nice. at the Computer History Museum there where they've got lots of video games. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he did a talk on composing 3D objects in OpenGL. Uh, with F sharp, and we oh, kind yeah. of uh, felt Good. sorry for the next speaker because it's it's hard to follow animals and children oh. on uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow on on uh, entertainment. Well, the whole Minecraft side of this is really interesting. Just from uh, you know, people there are kids, there are eight year olds learning Java to mm. do extensions to Minecraft. Yeah, and now yeah. Microsoft's bought Minecraft. You have to wonder if they're going to change the programming model. Yeah, uh, it's actually one of the um, things that I did early on in my own programming life was just uh, modifying games, sure. uh, typing mm-hmm. games. I think mm-hmm. it's a great entry point um, because you, you've got some interesting environment to play in, which yeah. you, you don't uh, have just with Hello World. Yeah. Um, the hour of code's actually been quite good for them. Um, yes. They're very nice and quick, and yeah. uh, the um, processing JS is really nice for getting graphics on the screen yeah. and they've been playing with python as yeah, well cool. so, yeah. yeah something uh, to see and ma- manipulate yeah my uh, daughter has done processing uh js mm. at uh, design school she goes to risd nice. yeah it's really yeah. cute uh, you yeah. do some beautiful things it's great for adults too yeah sure <laughs> sure is so, so anyway we were talking about uh using tokens and, and getting into that part of the, yeah, the process. Yeah. Let's jump back in there if we can. That's great. So, yeah, we've got a token stream, which will describe things like numbers, uh, literals, um, our kind of brackets, curly braces, all that lovely yeah. stuff. And then we'll go through, and we, it's easier now to pass over that token stream. Mm. And uh, from there, we pass into the abstract syntax tree. And I think we got to the point where, from the abstract syntax tree, we can transform it anywhere we want we can right. interpret straight off the back we can um push it out to uh compile out to, to, to another language. language right yeah um now this, this is um part, part of where we're going with this is parser combinators are interesting is that instead of having this tokenized pass it's all merged into one mm. and that kind of makes it a bit quicker right so okay. we we just literally um write the parser as we go no token stream is required, right. and it actually helps make the error message handling make makes uh, adding generic error error messaging a lot easier because mm-hmm. we're just on the, we're on the stream right. when we're on it, and you're in the, and we, you're we in the execution tree already. We don't have two parts that we need to decide where do I put the error? Is right. it there or there? So, so I mean, you're, you're still really tokenizing. You're just doing it in line with the parse. Exactly, at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then it gets, get why that error handling gets better then, because it's the parse that really reveals more complex errors. Yeah. 
Now, I, I think for um, uh, a lot of uses, that's a really good approach. Um, uh, the company I'm working for now, Simcor, um, based in Denmark with offices in London, have a parser for the APL language. Mm. Oh, wow. And, um, Old they, school. Yeah. Uh, well, APLs were really powerful language yeah. for mathematics. And um, we're in the finance domain, so I think yeah. it's actually a, a pretty good choice. Mm. Um, but they've been able to pass over APL and add um, type annotations in comments mm. over um, over the APL code so they can add type checking. Mm. In similar ways, there's... Um, type checkers for Python and for JavaScript where right. you add the type annotations mm -hmm. uh, but you don't affect the actual compiler. You have the pre-compile step right, that the, checks that those types. And they're using fparsec for that. Um, there's a talk um, from the recent uh, APL conference um, in Bournemouth um, mm. where um, they've, they've talked about how what they did there. So, um, yeah, there's... Um, it does scale up to fairly strong industrial uses, yeah. but but equally, I think um, this idea of build one to throw away really uh, um, appeals to me. Right. If I if I'm going to put in an effort, a lot of effort to write a compiler or interpreter or or whatever it is, I want to be there quickly and proving that it's going in the right direction before I I go out and spend months or seven years building a compiler. Sure, yeah. Because uh, you could go two years in and then go, oops. Yeah. Uh, and then you just have to cut everything and start again. Wow. That that would be a now, pretty painful if place. Gonna, if you were going to create a DSL, a domain-specific language, for, let's, I don't, I don't care what it is, you know, some sort of vertical slice uh, of an industry that, has its own particular set of syntax and language and all that stuff. Would you write a compiler for that, or would you use one of the higher level tools to to do a DSL? I mean, at what point do you say, no, you know, we need a, everything that a compiler can yeah. give us? So the compiler is probably your last option. Um, yeah, but they're fun. But uh, the passing uh, technology or the interpreting technology would be very similar. Yeah. Um, now, there's actually two forms of DSL. You've got your external DSL, is where you're you're passing some external form, mm -hmm. usually a text file, but yeah. it could be graphical. I've written graphical languages, sure. Um, and then you've got your internal DSL, and I would start with an internal DSL, um, and you would you would write this kind of um, programming language within the programming language you're using. Right. And if you're using something really flexible like F Sharp, you can probably get pretty close to the syntax that you want. Okay. Um, just within the power of the language, right. so without having to, to to enforce people to do brackets and semicolons, right. you don't necessarily want your business users doing that kind of crazy stuff. So you stuff. piggyback on an existing language and then add your own keywords and your own functions yeah. and your own things. Yeah, and um, F sharp. Um, obviously, you can just have those imperatively do the thing. Yeah. Or you can have them represent an abstract syntax tree that you then pass over. Right. Um, and um, F sharp also has the ability to emit the abstract syntax tree of the code that you've yeah. uh, compiled and, yeah. and passed. So that's always been in the language. That's, that's kind of Rosalind brings um, C-sharp up to where, you know, F-sharp 0.1 right. on this um, this kind of and, uh, emission. And there's another, there's another technology in this stack that is related, and that's code generation. So, you yeah. know, at what point... This is what I'm always just struggling with. You know, what, are there any kind of ways to smell when you want to use code generation versus use a DSL versus write a compiler? I mean, what, 
Those those kinds of things fascinate me. Those yeah, decisions. it is a lot of fun. Um, so I've I've had two open source libraries where I've uh, ended up using uh, code emission. Uh, the first one is a library called TickSpec, and it's um, for automated acceptance testing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of in the same space as say Specflow or Cucumber. Sure. And um, what I do there is I pass the given when thens in the tables, and I actually emit IL code, right? Neat. So I'm actually having a compiler for the given when then. Making a compiler for and, and that gives you um, the breakpoint capability within the text file, mm. which is, is very nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's actually because it's such a really quite simple language, the mapping in terms of a, a particular line, mm. it's really just a method call. Right, sure. Right? And then um, there's an IL emit that lets you mark uh, where the where it came from in the source document, which allows you to have that breakpoint. Yeah. So actually, with only a couple of hundred lines of code, I've got something that emits um, and and lets you do this breakpointing and, and and have this lovely experience. Mm, wow. And the advantage there over say something like Specflow um, is that that happens when you run at runtime. So we don't need to have um, these backing files um, yeah. that you have. Um, the code gen uh, right. and the text files there. It will just happen. Mm. So um, you, uh, one of the problems I was trying to solve there is when you have a large number of tests, um, it takes a long time for Visual Studio to start because it wants to go through and visit all of those um, mm-hmm. those backing files. Sure. Um, and I don't need a plugin either because it literally just does that code emit step directly without any Visual Studio Edition. Right. So right. the whole of TickSpec is just 100k DLL. You drop it in mm. your project and you've got all the kind of functionality that you have with the huge frameworks. Um, wow. So I've, I've, that's been used a fair bit. Um, it has some really nice power features. That's one example. And, uh, and that is your product, TickSpec? Yeah, TickSpec. I wrote yeah. that about three or four years ago. That's great. I, I found the link for it. It's, it's on uh, CodePlex. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a good active community of people using it um, right. it's nowhere near as huge as Specflow, yeah uh, but it um it has some power features that people appreciate mm. and and a lightweight deployment i think it's great that we have alternatives i think sure spec is awesome it's got yeah. amazing visual studio integration and i i'm here i'm offering something a, a lighter weight alternative mm-hmm. to Specflow. Mm-hmm. uh another um library i've done is um you have mock on um, mm-hmm. in C Sharp world, and that's great for mocking C Sharp um, programs. Right. So um, F Sharp, F Sharp, you can think of, or you think maybe C Sharp as a subset of F Sharp. So F Sharp has features on top of um, C that C Sharp just doesn't have. Right. And so I created a um, a mocking framework using CodeMit again. Uh, it actually is a single file. Um, you can either include it in your project or as a DLL, and it has all of the core features of MockQ. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, instead of using Castle Core, it, it just emits the code. Mm. And again, it's just a couple of hundred lines. And mm. there, what we need to do when we're mocking an object, we need to emit a class, and we emit all of the methods that meet the abstract um, type or the the interface. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of a fun project. Uh, I, I, I went. I made the mistake of going on Twitter and asking why I should call this F-sharp equivalent to Mock-U. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it, it's now called um, Fuck You. Fuck You. <laughs> yeah, I could see that coming. Yeah, so I, I'm looking forward to, I think everybody's looking forward to version two, which will be Fuck You Too. Fuck You Too, yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, Should we bleep that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's with an O. I know. But, oh, it sounds very close to something else. <laughs> something else. You know, most of the time when you talk about, yeah, you amuse yourself there, Phil. I love it. But almost every time we're really talking about the compiling side, you're talking about compiling to IL. Yeah. So letting then letting the CLR pick it up to actually execute on the machine. If you really wanted to go to executable compilation, I, that seems intimidating to me. Like that's a hard step. Well, it's actually um, so compiling out to uh, machine code. There's a, there's a number of different ways you can go with that. Oh, yeah? So um, you could either just omit the raw bytes. Um, if you are a big macho man. <laughs> when, um, when I was uh, uh, about 10 or 11, I used to write games in basic and assembler. Right. And I'd, I'd literally ha have to uh, look up the opcodes right. in, in the back of the book right. and type them in as hex. Right. Um, so it is possible... Um, but, but probably a little Those bit, bit, different bit crazy. Days, um, <laughs> no. So it's not, not, not beyond the whip, man. But yeah. um, what you could do is a, a lot of people compile out to C. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to get close to assembly language right, sure. um, performance. Right. Or you can emit out to assembly in text form. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then, um, then just Masm. get a, a MASM or, or whatever it is to Cash compile that out. Yeah. So yeah. it's not that different from compiling out. Um, to JavaScript or something. I actually learned assembly language before I learned C. Yeah. Which was because of Crescent Software. Right. Those, those guys were doing quick basic plugins for in assembly language. And I say plugins, they were quick basic libraries, but they were built in assembly. And yeah. they, you could stub out a lot of the quick basic things and get your uh, EXE a lot smaller. Because the default stuff they threw in a quick basic executable was a lot of unnecessary stuff. In the early days, I mean, I didn't have a C compiler for my TRS-80. Right? Yeah. So I had Z80 assembly code. Yeah, so that's yeah, what yeah. you use. That's what was there if you really wanted to get down into the weeds. Yeah. Oh, boy. We're keeping Yeah, no, I, I, was a, I was a... <laughs> Welcome to three old guys talk about the good old days. They weren't really all that good, actually. <laughs> I was a games programmer for about 15 years, and a lot of that time I was writing assembly. Sure. Um, Did maximize performance. Yeah, um, and... For for the core bits, actually, one of the things that um, uh, is is not really well, well known is we often use scripting languages and interpreted languages for the gameplay, and that still exists now. People are mm. using Loire for scripting in mm -hmm. in Xbox 360 and PlayStation games. Sure. Um, so back in the 80s and mid 90s, this is where I started to do quite a few uh, languages. I had my own languages for game logic, mm -hmm. and they were text-based languages. Uh, using coroutines. So, mm. in effect, the yield statement in C Sharp yeah. came out in 2005. Yeah. Um, that's how, um, in games, you kind of model a state machine. And it's a lot easier than doing uh, kind of, here are all my states and here's my switch case statement. We just yield right. at a particular point. Yeah. Um, and one of the beautiful things about having that interpreted form was that if we're doing a version for Super Nintendo and for... Um, Sega Mega Drive or PlayStation 1, yeah. we can take the code um, interpreted form and just rewrite the interpreter. Sure. And uh, in, in assembly, 
but that we can just port over all right. the game logic without any effort. And you right. are going cross-platform with yeah. games. So even on Super Nintendo games, you actually have, inter- which is running a 3.5 megahertz uh, processor, yeah. Yeah. you're actually running interpreted code. But for the really core, fast-performing parts, you're going to go in assembly. Right. And oh. I, I think there's something to be said for... Um, rather than one language rules all or one lang- one approach rules all of of a hybrid approach, maybe not going through no, six sure, different yeah. languages, right. but but you know using a higher level language for for your high level abstractions and your low level language for your high performance. Points. Sure. Have you looked at what Unity does? You know, Unity, the game engine that like you write you you develop it in this environment and then it runs everywhere. Yeah, um, I believe that runs Mono. Um, uh, last time I saw it, it was running Mono 2. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that will then um, do what we do in Xamarin Studio and yeah, then right. uh, compile out to um, what, native on Android, native on iOS, and so forth. So um, you do the parsing once, and you get a, the, the tokenized uh, I'm not sure. version I, I, of it. And I then... think they might even go out to IL and then take the IL down from there. Yeah, that'd be an interesting discussion miguel would uh, know better yeah yeah well this mono pops up in so many interesting places it really does yeah Yeah. it's just this this weird little you never know where it quite where it's going to show up and now with rosalind and mono and the new microsoft we're in for some really interesting it's only going to get stranger it's hugely exciting the open sourcing part for for linux deployment it's just huge and we sort of talked about some terms around where we would use compiling to just sort of create our own language to extend what we're already doing. I think one of the really challenging parts about this is every time you work from a template to try and figure this stuff out, you are getting an implied syntax. Like, to really create original syntaxes has got to be quite challenging. Like, is there a better way to express this stuff than what is the default ways that we think of in the languages we're using right now? Uh, well, if we look at the um, C-sharps and Javas, yes. um, and JavaScript, uh, it's been fun um, watching my eight-year-old programming, and he's like, I like Python, I like F-sharp, but I just don't get JavaScript. What's right. with all the curly braces <laughs> and right. semicolons? It just yeah. doesn't, it just seems random and yeah. intuitive. There was a paper a little while back that said um, that a randomly selected um, syntax um, was equivalently um, productive uh, as Java. <laughs> Um, for a language um, for newcomers because right. it, it, it is pretty arbitrary. There's all this ceremony that you have to yeah. build in order sure. to, to make an expression actually function. Yeah. Where I think Python is very spare in that respect. Exactly, yeah. You just get down to um, getting the job done. Right. right? And Not a lot of ceremony. Yeah, I, I think there's some value in that. Um, the, the kind of use cases you have for these um, internal... Oh, sorry. External DSLs, particularly, is um, if we if we do an internal DSL, yeah. Um, in effect, we're leaving the power of the language to our consumer, right? <laughs> and um, yeah. they could do all sorts of evil things like uh, infinite <laughs> loops and yeah, Nasty. and uh, Fred dot sleep or uh, format C, um, <laughs> you name it. <laughs> so what we can do. Um, with an external DSL, particularly if we're just seeing off the back of an abstract syntax seat right. tree from, say, Roslyn, is 
We can inspect that code. Right. We can limit sort what... Sort of assess risk around it. We can limit what it does. We can limit the amount of time it gets to run if it's interpreted. Right. Um, so so that you get it, halfway through 40 the manning a drive and then kill it. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not. But yeah, we mean, so, so... I just went to the dark place. <laughs> you, just you just did. like that's that. Bad. Uh, Mateus has a, um, a talk he did at Build Stuff, Mateus Brandywinder, and um, he has a F-sharp evaluator on Twitter and you send it a, a piece of F-sharp code and it will evaluate it and re- return the response. Nice. Now in the first week uh, one of the guys in the community will remain nameless. Um, Directly to Infinite Loop. It was you, wasn't it? No, no, it really wasn't. That was a friend. A friend. <laughs> I had this friend. Uh, no, had I this wish friend. I was that smart. Um, so he managed to um, write out a file onto um Mateus's desktop saying, hello, sorry, I shouldn't have done this. Uh, (laughs) In a a tweet. Yeah. In a tweet. I love it. And that kind of shows you um, if you do open up a system. Um, But yeah, in terms of just sort of security, um, in terms of restricting the ability of the user and time slicing, it it might be a good choice. Mm. And and again, providing nice functionality. There's, There's quite a lot of DSLs coming out um, for business rules engines right. that, that allow non-programmers to use a textual format right. or, or even a graphical format um, sure. to, to, yeah, to yeah. Uh, compose out their code. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's really interesting to think about writing those small little nuggets of code, even from a programmer's perspective, to create a rules engine where I'm writing an algorithmic expression as a rule, having a full feature set available to me. I mean, it, that, I think, is one of the first things people jumped on when they looked at Roslyn. It's like, oh, okay, well, I can build this thing where we're going to write small expressions e- effectively in C-sharp, store them as data, and execute them on demand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, actually, just kind of, if we go even lower, mm-hmm. um, so from a passing point of view, uh, one of the things that you might want to do for your user is give them a powerful search. Right. And when we have a powerful search, in effect, it's almost like a programming language. Yes. Mm, and yeah. we're, we're, in effect, passing the expression sure. that they've given to sure. us. And so even for one-liners, um, you may want to have a cute parser. Um, again, a nice what, what you might do is you might have some sort of grid of information, some sort of financial information. Right. Now, your users are coming from Excel, and they like your grids because that's what they're mm. they're familiar with but they might want to have some sort of custom calculation. Well, in all these uh, off-the-shelf database products in the 80s and 90s, we always had this natural language query kind of assistant, you know, that that was a huge feature. You know, how many many, uh, widgets in inventory, you know, how many black widgets in inventory, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So you might you you might want to have a simple restricted parser that lets sure. them ha- invoke functions and do calculations. Mm. I actually have another example, um, a project called Cells uh, with a Z, right. uh, a bit like Lulz, and um, that's a open source spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows you to import and export uh, Excel files. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually uh, honors the styling and will display the styling, and it's. Um, passes over the Excel um, uh, statements and, mm-hmm. and executes them, so that all works. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, for fun, I took it one step further and added units of measure. Mm-hmm. So it's actually an Excel clone with units of measure support. Wow. Um, cool. So <laughs> that was kind of fun. Yeah. I'm just looking at it. Written in for Silverlight? 
Um, so the, I, I originally wrote in Silverlight when that was cool, which is um, <laughs> a while ago. Yeah, going a little while ago. Um, uh, but it, there are um, there, there are versions for uh, WPF and actually for Windows 8 Store as well. Nice. Yeah, cool. So um, Phil, what's next for you? I mean, you you have You're up to stuff. You have to yeah, you do lots of stuff. What, what what's what's the you know if I could only have time, I would write what. Well, um, I, I have a few little projects um, that I've been playing with. Um, something I've been doing recently or enjoying recently is just art, um, procedural art. So I've been taking hmm. um, modern artworks, geometric pieces, and kind of looking at them and going, I wonder if the artist, in, when they were in the 50s, hmm. um, if they'd had a computer, what, they w- what would they what have, have they done, done with, with it? it? Uh-huh. And if they could have done animated GIFs, what would, how would they have animated it? And I've been animating those. Ken Bisky, <laughs> one of my favorite artists, an abstractionist, but always had a real sense of geometry and so forth. And, just, and what he drew by hand compared to what he could do with the machine today, especially the animated yeah. form, mm. I think it'd be astonishing. So I've been, yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with that. And um, actually, each one of those art pieces tends to be a bit like a programming catalog. Sure. So I'm on the train. I'm just, I like that piece. Where could I go with it? And then by, <laughs> by the time I get to London, I've got a nice little uh, animated GIF. And uh, I've been collecting those up. That's neat. That is cool. Uh, another thing I um, th- this whole compiler thing is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess this is g- going back to sort of looking behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. The compiler writers have so much fun doing <laughs> this. Um, where us poor enterprise devs are dealing with really nasty right. things like databases, networks going yeah. down. <laughs> there's this lovely constrained problem, at least on the outside, right. where there's a text file in. And there's a right answer of the compiled code out right. the other end. So what you're saying, it's a great escape from reality. Yes, it's just <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, in never compared story. to dealing with the GUIs and databases, yeah. I think, uh, I think <laughs> us enterprise devs are actually having a harder, harder time of it. Yeah. So, um, I, I think instead of looking at it as, um, being necessarily, uh, a, particularly clever we, what we're doing is very hard maybe we can feel better about ourselves for having yeah, to awesome. deal with all of this horrid stuff while they they have the nice easy job right. of transforming text um, funny <laughs> well, also Phil- it's kind of timely with the rosling compilers and f-sharp compilers yeah, yeah. um sure. actually the f-sharp compilers now taken i think most of the new commits for f-sharp 4 have come from the community right there's been uh, three times the number of community pull requests coming from for F sharp mm-hmm. than for C sharp. We just wow. got the, the the community's on fire. That's great. Uh, but it'd be lovely to see TypeScript and C sharp getting that kind of community engagement yeah. Um, yeah. throughout the ecosystem evolution. and yeah. see where we can take it instead of seeing these people in ivory towers. You know, if you've got an idea, just go with it and uh, and have fun. I love it. <laughs> Phil Trollford, thank you very much for spending this hour with us. It was great. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios. 
a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got